welcome to Voices. My name is Ian Hunter, and I talk to people. Joining me today is Greg Little, author of over 30 books, including Edgar Cayce's Atlantis and the forthcoming Origins of the Gods. We talk about ancient humans, the ancient past, the mystery of Atlantis, and a host of many other really cool archaeological things. Stick around. I've heard that many times. I've spoken with many people that had the radio voice. I don't have really? that radio voice. I'm high-pitched, and it's I okay. tend to be all over the place, but hey, yeah. I'm okay with it. Yeah, so you have such a vast uh, content library. I don't know. I guess just starting from the beginning, human-wise, um, who are we? <laughs> <laughs> who are we or who are me? <laughs> yes, and you know, in, in the face of, uh, of modern archaeology and science, um, obviously, at this point, I think it's pretty, pretty good chances that the linear view of, of, of human evolution is not quite what we've thought or been told. And I would reckon that you would agree with the notion that when we reached a certain point, um, we uh, discovered shamanism or it discovered us, whether that's through plant medicinals or ceremonies or meditation or what have you. And these happened in uh, caves in the very distant past. What happened and what was the importance of what was going on? <laughs> well, that's pretty deep. Uh, it, is, it is true that historically we really don't know exactly where we came from or what it's all about. Uh, when you get back 10,000 years ago, it's just a blank. We don't know. We don't know anything back then. Yeah. Um, for example, there's a site in Turkey, Southeast Turkey, called Gobekli Tepe. Yes. Uh, and it dates back to about 10,000 BC. And when that was discovered back around 2004 or so, it changed everything because up to that time, the only stone structure that was old and known was basically in Malta. They went back to about 4,000 BC. That was the oldest known stone structures at the time. Uh, yeah. And everybody has always thought that civilization started in ancient Sumeria and around 3000 BC or so when writing and civilization mm -hmm. supposedly emerged. But that's, uh, that's, that's not really true. Uh, humanity's probably gone through several iterations of civilization and been destroyed. And that actually goes back to Plato's story of Atlantis. Uh, in 600 BC, Plato said that 9,000 years before then, there was a civilization. He called Atlantis. Archaeologists hate the term. It's the A word in archaeology. It's a, it's a dirty word to archaeologists. Is Lemuria a safer word? Uh, no, Lemuria is, <laughs> Lemuria is one they don't like either. It, it's another <laughs> dirty word. Uh, also known as Mu, M-U, it's spelled. Lemuria and Mu are the same thing. And it's the okay. uh, Pacific Island thing. Uh, the Pacific Islands we know now were inhabited as long ago as a couple hundred thousand years. Uh, and that wasn't known until recent times. Uh, archaeology and anthropology are two fields that are constantly evolving, and they're actually fighting against themselves. They're fighting against their belief system, and all of this uh, in the controversies that I've been involved with have to do with belief systems. If you're simply looking for the truth, there are certain areas you're not allowed to look in. One of the things my wife and I did, which you may not know, we spent 25 weeks over a 10-year period in the Bahamas. Uh, we got our own boat. We got side-scan sonars. We got several side-scan sonars. Uh, we hired an archaeologist out of California who came with us. Uh, we worked under an archaeological permit, and we went up and down in the Bahamas searching for any kind of archaeological ruins that we could find. And like we a found, yellow brick road. <laughs> uh, well, we found a lot of stuff. 31 crash planes. That's really the heart of the what's called the Bermuda Triangle. And yeah. we found 31 crash planes, uh, went down with uh, National Geographic and actually found the second most famous crashed plane in the of the Bermuda Triangle lore. Mm -hmm. uh, and they made a documentary out of it. We were with the History Channel there, too. But just for looking, for going into the Bahamas and looking, my wife and I and everybody else involved in it, we were ridiculed, really 
it was amazing how much ridicule we got from the mainstream archaeological field just for looking for what was there. And we did it under a program that we call the ARE Search for Atlantis. And the ARE is the Edgar Casey Organization in Virginia Beach. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we really don't know that much about history. Yeah. I think somewhere deep within us we know uh, intuitively, but we've just got layers of centuries of, I won't say false thinking, but just uh, we, we branched off, we formed different types of uh, philosophies and discovered um, new technologies and created new ways of doing things. And unfortunately, I think we, we uh, you know, just we've dissolved those things of the past and we're very forward thinking, which I think is good to think about the future. But uh, I would personally say the most advanced people were those, you know, those people who were, were connected even beyond the Native Americans and people being the indigenous being connected to nature. Even further back from that, the, there was something intuitively that we were that we were connected to that we've lost. Well, there you go. That's that's oh. my biggest interest. Absolutely. My very biggest interest. It's in Native American mythology and belief systems and their sacred literature in particular is what I'm really into. So in terms of that, uh, there is a very big difference between North American natives, the indigenous people in North America and those in Central and South America. Very big differences. They are not the same. Genetically, they're not the same. How they lived day to day, it's not the same. All you got to do is visit South and Central America and see the huge stone structures and know about what they did in terms of sacrifices and so on. And then visit the North American sites, which are predominantly mounds, earthen mounds. And there are tens of thousands of earthen mounds here today. And how they buried the dead and what their beliefs were, it's very different. Same, it's different also from other cultures around the world. However, there's an underlying belief system that they had, which is commonly called the Path of Souls. I wrote a book called Path of Souls that followed this, and it specifically is identical. The Native American, when I say Native American, I mean North American Indians, the Native American ideas about death and the death journey are identical to ancient Egyptian beliefs. Mm-hmm. Uh, and when we first, when Andrew Collins, a British author, uh, has co-authored. A Your colleague. Oh, yeah, he's my colleague. Uh, Andrew and I did this book called Path of Souls. He actually just wrote the introduction and the um, afterward. And Graham Hancock. Uh, well, I know Graham. Andrew knows Graham. Wow. Andrew's good buddies with Graham. I'm not good buddies. We are colleagues, and we've mm-hmm. talked to each other before and met several times. Uh, yeah, but, I, I secretly fantasized that. Fingerprints of the Gods, Origin of the Gods, and Chariots of the Gods will be a trilogy by completely different authors, but on the same subject. Interesting. <laughs> <laughs> Very, and, well, we named and you all know each other, so oh, I yeah. think you, well, would, you wouldn't have a problem with that. I yeah, uh, we wrote the book Origins of the Gods and titled it deliberately because it's similar to Chariots of the Gods. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Von Donniken read the thing before it was published and wrote uh, the introduction on it yeah. uh, and likes the idea. He liked the idea that we proposed. Mm-hmm. Uh, but hey, even Hancock was won over. Hancock has always believed and always speculated in his books that the the Egyptian belief system about death and the death journey was kind of unique to ancient Egypt. And when he read Path of Souls, this is the story I got from him. He carried a a mound encyclopedia uh, that I first wrote in 2009. We revised it in 2016. He had a backpack when he went to mounds in the United States. In his backpack was that um, mound encyclopedia and the Path of Souls book, and that's what he used as his guides. And that won him over, and he suddenly understood that it's the exact same belief system that Native Americans had. Uh, And it's it's a very interesting idea, Uh, and it's about where the soul goes after death and where it comes from. So even though they were so different from their South and Central American brethren, they shared that? um, They shared the belief system. They did not share customs, though. That, that was is, that simply result a result of, of an age difference. They arrived later during a later mi- migration, or is it purely cultural? Or 
I don't, I don't think that it's that, that it has to do with the age. I honestly believe that the Native Americans in North America deliberately chose to live a life in harmony with nature. And that is exactly what you will hear from the Hopi tribe, the Zuni tribe, and the Navajos. All of them say it's all about harmonizing with nature. Uh, and I have people ask me all the time, well, if they were so smart, why didn't they invent the wheel? Well, they did mm -hmm. invent the They had the wheel in South America. That's well known. They just didn't use it as much. Yeah. Uh, and Native Americans, I, I say this all the time, what what would they need a wheel for? Exactly. What, these people didn't believe in land ownership. They believed you occupied the land for a temporary period of time, and you used the resources that you needed. You replaced the resources that you could, and then when you were ready to move, you took what you had and you moved on to another location, and you did the same thing over and over. And they conducted rituals during all of these movements that they had deliberately intended to keep them in harmony with nature. Yeah, that's the balance, isn't it? Um, were they living in a... Um kind of a hybrid space between hunter-gatherer and, and an agricultural? Or was it, uh, did they not need um, a full-scale agricultural society the way we had in, uh, in, in the rest of the world at that time? Um, I guess not because they were just living so peaceably and, and, and uh, minimal off the land. But That's uh, a good word for it, minimalist. Well, okay. Uh, most people don't know this. Uh, and that is that when Columbus arrived in 1492... He only made it to the Bahamas. He never made it to North America yeah. in all of his trips. Well, in 1492, archaeologists and anthropologists tell us today that the population was at least, this is their minimum amount, yeah. 57 million people were here. 57 million. Most archaeologists and anthropologists today believe that it was closer to 150 million people that were here. They were very quickly exterminated through disease and through war. 90% yeah. were gone just like that. Yeah. But when the first white explorers went through, it's like Memphis. Okay. When the very first ones came through, what they did was go up and down the rivers, the white explorers. And like when they got to Memphis, when they got here, they said that they could, it was so densely populated when they went up and down the Mississippi River yeah. that they couldn't tell one village from another. It was that dense. However, right outside the villages, vast fields of corn, squash, beans, and so on. Yep. And they, I mean, the people lived very well then. It, it, is very, it is accepted and known that they lived well. They really didn't have as many diseases until the Europeans came in. Yeah. True, they didn't live as long. They had terrible dental health and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Uh, if they got hurt, they, they probably died from infection or whatever. Uh, but it, but they did live a minimal, minimalist, that's hard to say, minimalist, minimalist lifestyle. Yeah. yeah. But they had what mattered, arguably, which was a connection that the Europeans could not have dreamt of um, with all their... No, they couldn't understand Might it either. Force. And that's something that I think about a lot. You know, when we splintered off from the continent, if we're going with that theory of, of origins, uh, you know, it's, it's like humanity split and went into these different veins. And then we end up with a people that chose a path for whatever reasons, the Europeans, like say, of uh, innovation and, and technological might and machinery independence on things like that. And then obviously there were people... Who who went off and and just lived um, off 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 the the land and in harmony with nature and and things and um, of course they were always seen as backwards or primitive because they weren't advanced in, in that regard. I always thought that was unfortunate. So when they met each other, there was obviously this this culture clash of uh, <laughs> of might over apparent weakness. But it's sad because at at the heart we're all human and. I would like to think intuitively we would know, uh, we would know better, but that's just not where the pieces fell. So you had displacement, you had uh, disease, you had wiping out of peoples. Uh, Still going on today. Yeah, the exact same things going on today. It's pretty incredible um, that we can acknowledge that we're one at this point, especially, um, um, but still fall into the trap of colonialism and in the name of exploration and advancement. Um, but 
just back to the ancient, the deep past, it's it's just really fascinating, isn't it? Yeah, it really is. Um, uh, that's why I've written so much in it, and it just keeps coming. So Kesem Cave. Kissing? Is Kesem, that how you pronounce yeah, it? Yeah, it? it is pronounced and is, real, is that a relatively recent find? Yes. Uh, okay. It is very recent, uh, almost the moment it was discovered and announced mm-hmm. by two Israeli archaeologists um, in, in Tel Aviv. They were from uh, Jerusalem. I can't remember the name of the university, whatever the big one is there. Uh, but it, it was discovered outside of Tel Aviv when they were building a road which is how a lot of sites are found. Yeah. So they found they when they were building this road, they broke into a cave that went underground, obviously. And they immediately called in the archaeologists. The archaeologists went in started excavating, and they went deeper and deeper and deeper. And they at first ran carbon dating. The carbon dating exceeded 50,000 years ago. Mm-hmm. And that's all carbon dating can do is go back 50,000 years reliably. It can't go back hundreds of thousands. Has there been any, any advances in carbon dating? No, or is it not pretty simple it's, process? It's pretty simple. I've had okay. a lot of carbon dating done. All that stuff we did in the Bahamas, we carbon yeah. dated. We, you can carbon date certain rocks. You know, you'll hear all the time, you can't carbon date rock. Well, you can carbon date... Uh, a type of limestone, beach rock limestone, can be reliably carbon dated. Yeah. That's another story. Anyway, uh, no, carbon dating goes back reliably to about 50,000 years ago. And then you have to use a whole bunch of ever, other things, such as stratigraphy or um, luminescence. Uh, there are several other things that you can do. But anyway, the archaeologists dug deeper and deeper, and they eventually got to 400,000 years ago. Mm-hmm. 400,000 years, they found at, at a level dating not far back, they found all kinds of interesting artifacts, trinkets. Uh, they found what is being described as the first food canning, which was actually, uh, it's not canning, that's just the term that they used, but it was taking large bones from like deer and other animals and hollowing out the bones and then packing them with food and sealing the ends. Mm-hmm. That's what they did. Uh, and a lot of that has been dated through the other methods, but it's very reliable. Uh, the dating. Andrew Collins went there when we did this book. I, I was taking a trip at the same time to a place in Utah called Hovenweep, uh, which is real near Skinwalker Ranch, by the way. Mm-hmm. But Andrew went there, met the archaeologist. They drove him out to the site, which is really in the middle of nowhere now because they stopped the road. This is such yeah. an important site. They don't know exactly who these people were, although they may have been Denisovans. An earlier book that Andrew and I did back in 2019 was called Denisovan Origins, and it was about the discovery of this long-lost... Uh, branch of human, right? Yeah, right. Branch, right. Of, branch of humanity. Most of us carry Denisovan DNA mm-hmm. in us, a yeah. very small amount. Native Americans carry more than anyone else. They carry mm-hmm. about 3 to 4% of their DNA is Denisovan. Uh, I have a lot of, I've had my DNA tested. I have a lot of Neanderthal, which my wife says explains a great deal. Uh, but I do, I'm like in the top 1% of Neanderthal. Yeah, so we've got DNA. these kind of echoes or these, these remnants of our Absolutely. Ancient, uh, interbreeding. It's all interbreeding. Yeah. Uh, that's, that's what it is. Uh, but the Denisovans probably were the people at Kesem Cave. Wow. Uh, there was a lot of other stuff there, including artifacts of shamanism. And I think yeah. that's where you wanted to At go. At the heart of it, yeah. Right. Uh, so they actually took Andrew into the labs. He got to lay it all out on tables. They explained it all. He photographed it all. Uh, and that's something he does. That guy is amazing. He yep. will go to these sites when they're discovered, go to the most impressive and important archaeological researchers in the world, and they yeah. let him in and... Uh, it's just real interesting. Yeah. Those Brits have a have a legacy of archaeological. Yes, if the pyramids <laughs> weren't so big, the, the the pyramids would be in the British <laughs> Museum, like a lot of other stuff is in there. <laughs> well, incredible! I think it's uh, just so beautifully ironic that uh, Kesem is is in the location that it is. You know. It goes way down. Andrew has yeah. a great story about climbing down in this thing and going way, way, yeah. way down in it. Maybe there's an energy there or something that's so well, powerful that, uh, you know, the reason that the great Abrahamic faiths came out of that region, you know, I don't know. Uh, it's, it's just wonderful to think about that that cave is right there in the middle of, of the land of <laughs> it, I know the origins of so many uh, biblical, all the faiths that are centered in that geography, um, and that's where the cave is. Yeah. 
Incredible. Well, that's the earliest shamanism evidence that has ever been found so far. anywhere so far. You're right, so far. Um, well, are the are the Chavot caves uh, in France, of, obviously those are much more recent sooner um that's that's also quite incredible and i think the the evidence is looking promising that the those were drawn in a state of um you know in a shamanic state or some kind of oh absolutely uh, under the influence of some kind of um, uh, medicinals or um, psychedelics even and that's what drove them into a dark cave to do that to paint um, their dreams there's a um, lot of interesting theories on that and i will i will say this the the caves in france have been a big deal because they're in europe however there are older cave drawings in south america in brazil that go back at least to fifty thousand years ago in south america in brazil yeah but now genetics bears it out. The yeah. genetics very clearly show us that people were in South America at least 50,000 years ago, probably yeah. far before. Yeah, when the science is in your face, that's kind of hard to refute, yes. even if you're a staunch uh, modern scientist. So yeah. seeing that 440,000-year-old um, carbon dating must have been a wake-up call to, to the community. <laughs> uh, you know, even though they publish that, it doesn't mean that mainstream archaeologists are going to accept it. They, they always say the same thing. We need more evidence. We need more evidence. I mean, there's a site in South Carolina uh, that an archaeologist, Albert Goodyear, found many, many years ago. He dates it back to 50,000 years ago, too. Yeah. Everybody accepts now, okay, 20,000 B.C., yes, but 50, yeah. no, it just can't be. And they say it can't be, therefore it isn't. That's, that is the logic that they imply. It simply can't be. Therefore, it isn't. So there must be something wrong with the data. Uh, but good, Albert Goodyear was one of the most meticulous archaeologists around. He is still around, still at South Carolina. Uh, and there's lots of sites like that in the Americas. We yeah. really don't know the history. And this thing about the Bahamas, let me say one more thing about that. But one of the reasons that the archaeologists really jumped on my wife and I and our colleagues for doing all that research in the Bahamas, yeah, we did it under the Atlantis thing. We didn't find anything with Atlantis. We've never found anything that we've said was Atlantis, and it was just a, a way to, uh, to, to conduct this research and, and a reason to do it. Uh, but they claim that no one was on any of the Bahama Islands before the year 500 B.C., mm-hmm which is absurd. Cuba was occupied long before that. And of course, the the first Spanish that came in, there's actually great articles written about this in books. The Spanish literally killed every single indigenous person on Cuba. There's a, there's a great story about wow. how they hunted down the last remaining one in the mountains who was trying to hide. It's unbelievable what, what was done. It is. And all the information lost with that. The extraterrestrial... That's obviously uh, a consideration, especially in, in your field and um, and Eric's field. What do you think? Uh, okay. Do you know my field? Do you know what the, it is? I'm a psychologist. Yes. I'm a criminal psychologist. That's that's my profession. Beautiful. Yeah. Okay. So go ahead. Uh, well, um, so if if we're going to take into account that that is real, how far back do you think there was um, an influence? Uh, or are we talking more of a cosmic influence uh, through shamanism as far as man's early origins, whether he had help, um, some kind of psychological help or evolutionary help or concrete help, um, building pyramids, building temples? Um, or was it was it necessary? Was, was early man not enough on his own um, to to become what what we've become that that's another really interesting set of questions there's more than one there uh first of all uh the best the best argument i've ever heard for ancient aliens doesn't come from any of the ancient aliens people it comes from the greatest skeptic of all time carl sagan the astronomer carl sagan carl sagan wrote an article in 1963 and he published it in the journal Space and Science. That um, was a peer-reviewed journal. In it, he calculated the odds of life elsewhere, which many, many astronomers have done. They all say the same thing. There has to be life elsewhere in the universe. He calculated the odds that they would be advanced. He calculated the odds whether or not they could visit Earth. And he said that it is an absolute certainty that aliens have been to Earth. He said, and he even gave a number. In, in the end of that article, he said 
that it is apparent that that aliens have monitored Earth or been here 10,000 times. Yeah. Now, that was, he said, it's been over the last million years when it would have occurred. The last million years. And if you divide 10,000 by a million, you come up with once every 200 years. Yeah. That, that, so it's not that often. It's not like the ancient aliens people tell us that it's every, everything is ancient aliens. Yeah, or they jump-started and left, sure. you know. See, I don't believe in that. I don't believe in that. I don't believe they started everything. There may have been genetic manipulation. I know a fair amount about genetics. I've actually written a textbook in it and behavioral genetics. Yeah. And I believe that it's very possible that some genetic manipulation may have occurred. No proof for it, but mm -hmm. it's very, very possible. So the question is, what did they do? And I'll go along with what Sagan says, and that is he, they were monitoring us. They started monitoring a lot more at the end of the last ice age, around 10,000 B.C. Yeah. And that's when agriculture probably started. That's when people started living together. And we know this through Gobekli Tepe. And now mm -hmm. the new site, Karahan Tepe, which Andrew Collins is writing a book about now, Karahan wow. Tepe, which is probably older than Gobekli Tepe, but it looks identical to it yeah uh and so we're things are going way way back so yeah i think uh, that aliens have probably been here uh but i think most of what humans have done has come from our interaction and our connecting to a different type of intelligence that's right. where you get into what people might call the paranormal mm -hmm. or spirituality or something else that we connect to and the idea here comes from Native American beliefs. All things are connected. Yeah. Uh, that that interties with it. Uh, and their idea that the that everything started from a singularity, that's Native Americans. Everything started yeah. from a singularity, and everything was spiritual in nature. Everything. So everything is in an, a web. It is an interconnected web. And in this web... If you take the idea of a spider's web, it's a beautiful thing, a spider's web. And that's how they conceptualized everything in the universe. There are these invisible lines connecting everything. So if you take a spider's web and you vibrate any part of it, the entire web is affected by the vibration no matter where mm -hmm. you touch it or vibrate it. That's the Native American idea, and that's also what quantum mechanics believe now. <laughs> it's, yeah, isn't that something full circle? We're yes. starting to see it, the same thing. I mean, these, that's a real Native American idea. We just American have fancier idea. ways of saying it. Yeah, yeah. We call it science. Uh, they yeah. call it their most sacred belief system. Yeah, um, on the shamanic end or, or getting in touch with intelligences, um, obviously all indigenous and um, ancient peoples were not in an equal situation like depending on where you were uh, maybe the indigenous of the uh, the north americas weren't privy to the plants that the central and south americans have so um, i guess there's some kind of a i don't know if e inequality is the the right word but um, access to uh, maybe a deeper mm. uh, a deeper vision um, as it were um, the north americans were using a lot of uh Psilocybin. Yeah, yes. And uh, if you go out in the Southwest, there's things like Jimson weed and, of course, uh, peyote. Yeah. Uh, you go a little further down, of course, you get ayahuasca. Uh, I can't even say it now. Uh, ayahuasca. Ayahuasca. Uh, yeah. and, Which uh, Mr. Hancock could definitely uh, oh, testify. Oh, yes, yes. DMT. We, used to, we did research with DMT at Memphis State back in the wow. 70s. Uh, yeah. Yeah, all these. Got it from the DEA. DEA sent us LSD and um, liquid marijuana. Mm -hmm. You name it, all that. I, that's another story. <laughs> yeah, and it's, it's 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 fascinating that now it's becoming um, quote unquote trendy um, to take trips to Central, Central and South America and have these ceremonies. And people are really there's a yearning to wake up and and, and see um, a new type of reality. Um, um, so we're we're kind of getting reconnected in a way. Um, I talked about this with Michael Graber, who was consultant and goes in to help companies um, think about being more connected, more conscious. But he's a musician and kind of a hippie, too. So he's he's done a lot of that stuff. And he would argue that mushrooms are just as bit as effective as ayahuasca. Oh, sure they are. <laughs> I, you get the dosage, right? I'm sure it is. Now, let me make this clear. I have to say this every time. I am not an advocate for anybody using drugs. I don't, you know, that's why I can't recommend it to anybody. Um yeah. You know, use at your own risk. But that, they, that's yeah, what I said. Yeah. They obviously have played a part in 
Oh, yeah. And, and ancient peoples, oh, um, yeah. of course, they were used in a very different, um, correct uh, ceremonial circumstance. There uh, are mound sites in Ohio where they have actually found copper mushrooms. And when I, when I mm-hmm. say that, they are effigies of mushrooms, of, of hallucinogenic mushrooms that are made out of copper. And they're put at the end of what can only be called a magic wand dug out of mounds. So, wow. yes, we know the shaman were using all that. Uh, we know a lot of the rituals and how they did it. We know a lot about what they called the black drink, which that's something I'd like to try someday. Uh, I'm getting a little old for that because you throw up rather violently yeah. using the black drink uh, and you hallucinate quite a bit, too. But that's another story. Yeah, too. these were AIDS. Um, you still had to live and function in the real world, but they were AIDS and um, and to be used intelligently and responsibly. Um, Atlantis. Mm, okay. Is this your magnum opus subject? No, no. no. <laughs> you just, you know, I have, you just leisurely man, Baha- cruise around know, the Bahamas. And, the Atlantis stuff was just something we did over a 10-year period. Well, I mean, it's obviously, it's it's a fascinating concept, and I think just within human imagination, we, we love novelty. We, uh, we love the, the searching, the yearning. Um, I think if, if Atlantis were uh, just another continent that was still there, we had the evidence, we had the ruins, um, you know, it would just be in the archaeological um, um, record. But just this, this time, this time of nine to 10,000 years, is really incredible, and that touches back on something happening a long time ago. Um, that it's not out of the question that there was something magnificent in our deep, deep past that predated what we know as the, the great civilizations of, you know, just five thousand years ago. And, yeah. and, and um, well, Pla- and Plato's Atlantis. Later. Plato's Atlantis was. Everybody talks about the island and the Plato's Atlantis. He really said it was an island empire and the island mm-hmm. empire extended from the mouth of, well, the pillars of Hercules, which is Gibraltar, yeah. the mouth of the uh, Mediterranean into the Atlantic. And he said that there was a real ocean um, that was the Atlantic Ocean. And he said that the main island was in the Atlantic Ocean, far across the Atlantic, but you could hop from island to island and reach the opposite continent. That is what Plato wrote, that you could reach the opposite continent. But he said it was a island empire. And it was mainly a maritime culture, and it went, it traded all over the world. That mm-hmm. is basically out of Plato's writings, so the, the Timaeus and Critias. Yeah. Uh, he said it was destroyed in a cataclysm. He didn't say where the cataclysm came from, except it came from the yeah. sky, whatever that means. And he said it was destroyed around 9600 BC, not 96, it'd be about 11,000 years ago or so. And the information came from journeys he made to Egypt? Well, he got the, it was his, um, okay, so there's this linear line that goes back much further. So Plato yeah. got the story. Uh, from his grandfather who got the story from, uh, there's, there's several names here. Uh, but one of the guys, one of the early guys went to Egypt to Sais, spelled S-A-I-S, and it was on the pillars of Sais. Now, Sais was destroyed, and lots of researchers have gone to Sais and looked for the pillars, and they can't find the pillars. I mean, it was just, a, Sais was obliterated, just destroyed. Uh, but that's where the story came from. And Plato yeah. said that they passed that story along word for word and ask everybody to basically memorize it to keep it pure, to keep the story pure. Was it? I don't know. Uh, archaeologists say there never was it in Atlantis. We know today that there were maritime cultures, even in Central America, uh, along uh, the area around Costa Rica and Ecuador. There was a maritime culture that goes back to eight thousand bc it's very well known and recognized but again like in the americas if you go to the opposite continent the americas well uh, mainstream archaeology has said nobody was living there at that time uh, and it just simply couldn't be but we know in ten thousand bc the ocean levels were around well uh, be i'll be accurate here okay so in in ten thousand bc the ocean levels were a hundred feet lower than they are today So like the Great Bahama Bank was gigantic. Mm -hmm. There weren't just a lot of small islands in the Bahamas. There was one massive island, which today we call the Great Bahama Bank, attached to what we call the Little Bahama Bank. 
And it matches perfectly what Plato said was the size of the main island, but there were more than one island. Was that the location that Edgar Cayce also Edgar Cayce said, said that, that he didn't say the Bahamas was Atlantis. He never said that. What he said was that toward the end, the Atlantean priests got a message from the outer spheres. The outer spheres represent something alien or extraterrestrial, but they got a message that something was coming from the sky and they needed to preserve the records of Atlantis. And they came up with a plan to make three identical sets of records and put them in three different places in the world. The most famous place is called the Hall of Records. It's supposedly under the right paw of the Sphinx, uh, in a chamber beneath it. Uh, I know Zahi Hawass, who mm-hmm. was over e- Egypt. Yeah. Uh, Zahi told a group of us once that in, in when he was in Virginia Beach. Is he Beach, still the head of the... No, uh, no Zahi, uh, the uh, Arab Spring that changed wow. everything in Egypt. Um, Zahi was good friends with uh, Mubarak's wife. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, of course, Mubarak was displaced, and yeah. his wife was pushed off to the side, but Zahi was good friends with her. Uh, and Zahi actually was facing possible death for a while. Uh, yeah. But no, he's still around. Zahi basically conducts tours now. Uh, yeah. He does probably very good tours, too. Yeah, he seemed to be a great catalyst for... Uh, uh, he was. For uh, that, that world, you know, especially accommodating Western uh, yeah. archaeologists and TV shows and everything else. But was the Paul never explored? Because uh, it's of, been uh, the very first people that drilled into it were people from the Edgar Casey organization. It was two women. This this is a wow. true story. In the 1940s, two women went to Egypt, got permission to drill right by the right paw of the Sphinx and drill down about 45 feet into the stone. And when they did, water started coming up. Yeah. That's what's happened over there. The water table, and when you get down to about 30 feet or so, the water table's there. Yeah. So you get water. So that was the very first time. But the other two Hall of Records, okay, the one in Egypt is the most well-known one. A second one was in the Yucatan. Edgar Casey said this in 1932. He said the second one was put in the Yucatan. Uh, it is a place called uh, Piedras Negras, Guatemala. It's mm-hmm. on the Asuma Center River. It's a very dangerous place. It is not a tour place. I have been there. Uh, my wife and I took a two-week expedition, hired like 14 people to take us in there. Wow. We had a plan to get out if something bad happened. On the river, we saw drug runners going up and down mm-hmm. uh, with machine guns on the boats. And yeah. after we left Piedras Negras, uh, the drug Uh, cartels took over Piedras Negras and put machine gun emplacements on all the pyramids that overlooked the river there. Uh, The DEA went in with uh, helicopters and so on and moved them out. It's a long, bizarre story. But we do believe we found the site where it would be. A Guatemalan archaeologist worked with us in that. Again, that's another lot. We could spend another hour talking about that. And the third one was in the Bahamas, and it was a sunken temple uh, Edgar Casey said that if you start at Bimini, go to the south along the Gulf Stream and do a geological survey, that's the only way you could find it. And it was covered by the slime of ages. That was his yeah. term. So we made videos about that. The last thing that we found looks like a collapsed temple yeah. about 30 miles south of Bimini. The Bahamas recognize it as an official archaeological site. And have after we sent them the information, and yeah. they have barred anyone from going back to it. Yeah, it seems that there's uh, roadblocks and regulations that are so uh, tight, right? <laughs> you know, yeah. uh, to to prevent any further exploration. Uh, I guess we'd have to call Dr. Henry Jones to <laughs> accommodate you guys, but. It's fascinating. Were the records written in a language native to that time, or no. was uh, would it be in hieroglyphs? I mean, what would it be? Uh, Casey said it was pre-hieroglyphic. So, uh, if found, could they be translated? He said it would take a, quite a while to be translated, yeah. and they're on uh, thirty-two stone tablets. And what would they say? We were here. <laughs> no, it, it actually, according to Casey, you know, it's uh, psychic information. Yeah, yeah. Edgar Casey went into a psychic trance. That's where this information. Came from. And I think he was so affected because he um, he seemed to be a rather humble individual. He was. His health readings are very very accurate. Yeah. Lots of medical researchers have studied Casey's health readings. We're talking about fourteen thousand, almost fifteen thousand psychic readings where yeah. every single word was written down. 
Two-thirds of those are about individuals' health issues, and then he would he would diagnose the health issue, and then often he would recommend a remedy. Sometimes yeah. he'd say, there's nothing can be done. You're done. He would actually say that. So medical researchers have been able to take that because every word was written down and then validate or verify was he right or not. And they consistently have come up with numbers published in medical literature. Even the American Medical Association journals have had this. Yeah. Uh, he was 80-some percent correct. They call him the father of holistic health. But his, in his readings in Atlantis, though, not all of his history readings... And uh, his remote viewing stuff was fascinating as well. Well, he just, yeah, he'd close his eyes, go into a self-induced mm-hmm. trance, and yeah, he would describe what, what he saw. I'm wondering, like, we... S- I don't mean to branch off for what you're about to say, but um, like we talked about the remnants in our DNA of, of ancient human varieties. Um, if this is just something innate that we all have, that's just sleeping, you know, um, maybe he was a, a minority kind of freak of nature where this thing woke up. Um, but I don't know. He wasn't the only one. Other people have had that power, but that's fascinating. Well, he had an eidetic memory. That's well known in childhood. He could look at something like look through a book. Mm-hmm. And he had the pages memorized. Yeah. That is that is very well known. People have said that he could sleep on a book and remember it. And that's what's in a lot of the literature. And I've I've evaluated that as of others. And it was an eidetic memory he had, which yeah. is very, very rare in adults. Children sometimes have it. But that, that ability mm-hmm. usually, usually leaves children when they hit adolescence. So his take on Atlantis. Yeah, his take on Atlantis was very similar to Plato's about the ending and so on. But he gave a beginning in it, and he said it began around 210,000 B.C. Mm -hmm. And uh, it began with a new type of human, which is us. So the spreading of records in three quite disparate yeah. um, brings up the the, the concept of, of them getting it there. If we're going with Atlantis as being real, they had flying machines and things mm-hmm. like that, which was, if I'm not mistaken, not in Plato's original account. That's something that no. surfaced after uh, Blavatsky. That that's Blavatsky's Casey. writings introduced Yeah, Blavatsky that. and Casey. Just going on a hunch, and then it spread, and now we just uh, assume that they had technologies mm, like that. <laughs> Edgar Casey's idea is, is very, very different. Now, uh, Plato, Plato said that they had chariots and swords and spears, and he talked about the number of horses they had and mm-hmm. elephants and all that. Um, Edgar Casey, he said that they did a lot of uh, genetics. Mm-hmm. Uh, they produced things as workers. Uh, there were all kinds of monstrosities that they genetically produced, and he said mm-hmm. there were two types of Atlanteans. Uh, he actually had a name for them. One was the sons of Belial, and which were people who were self-aggrandizing. They were into power. They were into war. Uh, the other were the children of the law of one, who were very spiritual, and they were in a yeah. constant battle between themselves. Uh, so, all right. So he uh, made it. Well, let me tell you what was in the records. That's where we stopped for a minute ago. So he said there's 32 stone tablets that were made, three sets of them. On those tablets, they're, they're on the front, they're on the back, they're on all the sides and ends. It, they're engraved what's on them. The history of Atlantis is there, and this is where the incredible thing comes in, the technology that they had. So, mm. first of all, Edgar Casey never said they had planes or submarines or any of that. What he said at their highest development, they had what look a lot like blimps or dirigibles, and he said that the actual sides of these which they filled with hot air and gas, gases. He said they were made out of sewn pachyderm skins, which a mm-hmm. pachyderm, of course, is an elephant. Mm-hmm. Uh, he said that's how they made these and that they flew using a crystal technology. Mm-hmm. And they would use these crystals to communicate. They would use these crystals to generate heat and energy. Mm-hmm. So that's where a lot of the weird stuff comes in. You will mm-hmm. see, he called, he said they had a firestone. There's a lot of this written down supposedly in these. Yeah. I'm not saying I believe any of this. I need to make that plain. I know the stories really mm-hmm. well, and I, I like telling the story. Uh, and I don't know if it's true or not. I don't disbelieve well, it if either. Well, we, if we take it as true, I mean, that was just merely their their way of uh, working out their technologies on the materials that they had. Um, they couldn't afford to do it the way we do with modern manufacturing. No. Plus, they had this other other element. I'm assuming of of, of a um, just a larger um, psychological or spiritual 
uh, mixed with that? I, uh, I don't know. They were um, probably more in tune than yeah. we are. And I, what Andrew and I talk about in this new book is we talk about the electromagnetic fields that we're always engulfed in. That there, the Earth has an ambient electromagnetic field called the Schumann resonance. Mm-hmm. And the Schumann resonance, um, the vibra- it's actually a, it's a type of vibration, but it's in the EM field. And it's a vibration that uh, if you put an electroencephalograph uh, you, you attach the electrodes to your brain and they mm-hmm. do an electroencephalograph recording on you. Uh, the Schumann resonance hits at that frequency is right between beta, which is full waking and, and theta waves. It is right yeah. at the cusp of meditation. Yep. And we humans evolved in that Schumann resonance. This is actually in, in genetic, um, evolutionary literature that they know we evolved in that just like we evolved with the lunar cycles too having an influence on us Mm -hmm. so we evolved in that but today we are not we are not immersed in the schumann resonance anymore we are out of touch immersed in 5g and wi-fi well yes and every every bit of electronics and we're in concrete all the time we don't walk on the ground and rituals that I talk about a lot. I know a lot about Native American rituals, what was done. They physically grounded themselves into the dirt. Even if it meant you have to remove the sod, you have to get rid of the grass or whatever's growing on it. You ground yourself like, like grounding in electricity. You ground yourself and then you begin the process to get your mentality right to that resonance, to where your brain activity is almost at meditation. And then you connect with whatever this other force is. Mm-hmm. That's the idea here. That seems a method to do it without having to ingest psychedelics as well. Well, I'm not sure what you see under psychedelics. I've, I've talked a lot about <laughs> That seems more extreme. Um, yeah. The grounding thing, I, I can definitely... Um, well, we know they for, did that it's at a lot of sites. Uh, yeah. There are ancient sites where we know for certain, and they still do it today. They were doing it in the yeah. 70s, and um, the ethnographers uh, wrote a lot about that. The early ethnographers for the Smithsonian uh, and the federal government back yeah. in the 1700s wrote yep. about it. The sounds of the earth. It's funny you mentioned that this morning I was listening to. Um, apparently in orbit there is... Um, I guess they're using some kind of a special um, sensor, but you can hear the yeah. earth, um, just the sounds that it was, it was yeah. quite, quite bizarre, but um, really amazing. Uh, and then I'll listen to Theta on occasion. Um, but the grounding thing about 10 years ago, uh, I discovered that um, it's quite incredible and so simple just to walk barefoot for 20 minutes. Mm-hmm. And, and the fact that we're, we are electrical beings on an electrical planet and, Absolutely. and simplicity and just, uh, you know, I, 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 I knew it as a kid going camping, but now I'm, I'm conscious of it. Um, I guess more of an intellectual level is just the best sleep of your life can really just be out on the ground, you know, um, you know, overnight, several hours and you're in direct connection. And then people spend thousands of dollars on fancy mattresses, but really they're just, they're separating themselves or fancy Absolutely. shoes. I know we're modern people. We're not going to just sleep outside all the time, but you can get connected once a day, once a week and walk on the ground. Um, it's really simple things, you know, it yeah. re- regulates your body and well, it's healthy. It's healthy too. It is. Yeah. So if we take into account that they had machines that can do that, um, they could have been a, quite a, a far flung. Um, I don't know if they were a superpower. They weren't like governing the world um, or were they just tending to themselves? I think um, it was a maritime culture and maritime um, cultures as they travel around, there are fights that go on. There's battles. Yeah. There's, you know, and uh, that Plato said that they were destroyed after the Atlanteans were destroyed after they attempted to conquer inside the Straits of Gibraltar. When they went into the Mediterranean, if they kept out of the Mediterranean, they wouldn't have been destroyed. But yeah. according to Plato, that is when they lost favor of the gods and the gods sent something down to destroy yeah. them. And of course, uh, the story would be uh, uh, the major um, allegation or accusation is that it's just an allegorical story of, Absolutely. of the ancient city-states and yeah. the, the state of Athens at the time. Um, the truth is that doesn't make any sense to me. I've really looked into that, and it's like, okay, it doesn't make sense. I can see why people write stories and make them up and, and write yeah. nonfiction. But Plato's character and his 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 
job, as it were. He seemed to be pretty pretty honest about his yeah, work. Yeah, what other business. stories were allegorical that he told? He wrote a great <laughs> right. deal. What else was a made-up story that he wrote? Yeah. No, and they, you can't answer that because it, there aren't any. And he told, I mean, it is a very strange story, and he never finished it. That's the problem. He died before yeah. he finished it. There was a third story he was going to write about it, but he died before he finished it. Mm-hmm. So, but again, Casey, Casey's Atlantis was not this high technological thing that everybody says Casey said it was. Yeah. Um, but it, it's clear that they could travel. Uh, they had lighter than air. Uh, according to Casey, they had mm-hmm. lighter than air vehicles. They could travel with that. They had vehicles that they used on water. Uh, they were very efficient with it. Uh, it was not a culture that was Stone Age culture, yeah. uh, but it wasn't technological like us. And they used these crystals. But I mean, kids use crystals too. You can yeah. take a quartz crystal and go outside in the summer and let the sun come through it and burn things with it. <laughs> and I, there's a very strange story that I heard not many years ago. It was two years ago before my father died. My father was 96 years old when he died, World oh. War II veteran. Uh, He died in Memphis, Um, and my father worked at this, this, I'm telling a story about myself and how I got interested in some of this. Uh, In the year 1963, we moved from Pennsylvania to Huntsville, Alabama, and my father went, after John F. Kennedy was killed, my father went to work at Redstone Arsenal, knew Werner von Braun, not well, but he knew and met Werner von Braun several times. Uh, and it was only before he died that he told me what he was working on at Redstone Arsenal because I never knew there. I knew what he did in other places for the mm-hmm. government, uh, which is pretty bizarre. Uh, but at Redstone Arsenal, what he did was help develop a communication system for uh, communicating with the lunar module when it got to the moon in case all of the electronics broke down. They were going to use a quartz crystal with a light beam that went from the earth to the lunar module. And they had one installed in it too, to communicate back to earth using beams of light. Was it a classified project? I have no idea. I mean, I certainly, they don't use it now. When he told me that I got online and started searching and I found the patent for it, mm-hmm. which is very interesting. My dad had said for years that uh, I've got a couple patents. Well, let me say them, Dad. Said, oh, I don't have those anymore. I don't have the paperwork yeah. anymore and all that. Uh, but I found the patents on them. Very, very weird. Yeah, I think we still don't understand the power of crystals. It's wild. No, right? we do not. And I, a little a little thing that I talk about all the time, you can take two large quartz crystals, get the cheapest and worst ones you can find, mm-hmm. get a good pair of gloves. you got to wear gloves to do this. Go into your bathroom, fill your bathtub half full of water, do this at night, turn off all the lights, make sure there's no light in there, put the gloves on, put your hands, put a crystal on each hand, put them under the water, and rub those crystals together in that complete darkness as fast and as hard as you can. You'll light up the room. How did you discover that? By chance? Or uh, you know, being I, a kid? <laughs> no, I, re- I read ethnography literature about what some of the shaman were doing with the ethnographers. They'd yeah. be in a, they would be in a dark area with the shaman, and the shaman would take crystals and put them into leather pouches. Yeah. And then they would grind those things down, and as they'd grind them down, little balls of light would yeah. shoot out. The original clean energy. Yes. Because oil is a lesser thing. We're just, we're just so backwards, oh, aren't we? Oh, well, yeah. <laughs> Maybe the starships of the future will be crystal-powered, crystal engines. But well, crystals are packed with uh, electrons. That's what's being released. Yeah. And Native Americans said that crystals are purifi- purified spirit, spiritual energy. Rocks are wow. solidified spiritual energy. Wow. Water's flowing spiritual energy. Fire's a release of spiritual energy. Assuming they powered Atlantean engines, uh, <laughs> part of me wants to, I know you said they were maritime mostly, but if they were explorers, um, and I'm thinking about the, the evidence that's growing now, um, that, that people have visited the Americas way, way longer. Oh, yes. Um, um, and I think of the great... Um, Gebekli Tepe, in this time um, of nine to 11,000 years, that seems to line up with the Atlantean thing. It does. Maybe that was some kind of Atlantean outpost. Uh, uh, it's know, not it's, too far away. It's it, relatively in the Mediterranean, right? I mean, it's in well, Turkey. Well, it's, so. in, it's in southeast Turkey. Um, and actually, the, the river's up there. There's Lake Van up there. Andrew yeah. wrote a book in 1994 
uh, and said that that is where the watchers came from, the biblical watchers around Lake Van, right in that exact area. And he said that civilization was started when they came down the Euphrates River then into the area where modern Iraq is. Yeah, they said, uh, you've been wandering for long enough. Here's some seeds. But even Andrew, now, <laughs> Andrew, of course, wrote books on Atlantis too. And he, Andrew Collins, he believes that it probably was something that does link to Atlantis. Although Andrew believes that the main island of Atlantis was Cuba. Mm. And that's something wow. we've been trying for decades. We've been trying to arrange to do an yeah. expedition to a very specific site in Cuba. Haven't been able to do it yet. Uh, but maybe someday we will. Well, I, I hope we, we close the loop. I don't think we'll ever close it, but hopefully we'll just continue to make discoveries. And um, it's in, it's incredible how most of the discoveries we've made have been completely accidental. You know, <laughs> yes. a fisherman wanders into the, uh, an explorer wanders into a cave or you have big obvious things such as the pyramids, but we still don't know fully the purpose. Um, oh, the of oldest those. mounds in, in North America it's for incredible. years were discovered by a, uh, it was discovered by this woman who went to archeologists repeatedly and they said, ah, we don't believe you. We don't believe you. Then they started logging the site and cutting all the trees down. She took pictures immediately, sent them off to the archeologists and they said, wait a minute, maybe you're right. And then the archeologists came in and started doing carbon dating and all mm -hmm. of it. You know, they take core samples and carbon date them. Yeah. And lo and behold, it turned out to be the oldest mound known at that time, which was yeah. like 1997 is when it was discovered. Uh, near Monroe, Louisiana, Watson mm -hmm. Break. Uh, it's a large circular site. There's 11 mounds in this circular site. And by yeah. the way, in that, uh, they found what looked like dice mm -hmm. in perfect cubes, three by three by three cubes in those mounds at Watson Break, which is, uh, they appear to be uh, pre-Semitic. Crystal. <laughs> Crystal cubes? <laughs> no, no, they're not. It, it's very, very, I mean, there's a lot of really strange stuff out there. There is. I mean, we're um, going all over the place here, you know, with Atlantis and American archaeology and stuff, yeah. which is fine. Trying to touch on the, yeah. the main points there. But they don't really know. We, yeah. I mean, we really don't know. We have a, it's not even an incomplete picture of the past. We see bits and pieces, and then people try to link them together and make sense of it. And then what archaeology and anthropology do is they come up with a consensus and they stick with that consensus yeah. until somebody comes along and really proves beyond a shadow of a doubt that there's something else. Yeah. They'll never accept Atlantis. That's That was always my take is just eventually we're going to stumble upon or dig up something that will be... Uh, Change everything. Yeah. Um, if there's no interference, like government interference yeah. or anything like that. But I would think in the spirit of science, it would be open and free. I guess that's one of the things that's been a concern of the extraterrestrial contact thing, whether if we find something on the moon or have, or you have this always have this looming element of the government or an intermediary who, who probably means well, they just want to protect the people. Um, but that's a different, that's a different thing. I will say to close though, that it's fascinating just to be alive and to be able to talk about these things. And we're always in history, you know, it's, we're not the culmination. We're just, we're on this journey. Yeah. And uh, I think there's a, a level of hubris to, to, to moderns to think that we've gotten to this point to where we'll always be known about. You know, we have hard drives and video cameras and vinyls, and we have a pretty set record, or so we think, so um, we think. that surely nobody in the far future would doubt that we ever existed. But all of our shit is ultimately it's all made out of natural things. You know, we've taken things from the earth and rearranged things and made make technology and um and it can all disappear. Yeah. And then especially when you bring seawater into to the fray and, and it doesn't really matter. I think we make the assumption because of the stuff the ancient world was made out of wood and stone that, that it just evaporates. But give it enough time, I think even our trains, planes, automobiles um, w would dissolve, especially if we were underwater for 10,000 years. Uh, and then I've seen planes. I mean, like I said earlier, we found third in, our, in the... In the shows that we did for National Geographic and the History Channel with the crashed planes that we found underwater, uh, we've saw, we saw planes that we know crashed in the 1990s and underwater, man, they just deteriorate in no time. I'll tell you what lasts. Incredible. Them. We found money. We, we pulled a pilot's bag out and then the bag was his, he had a pair of pants in there and he had his uh, passport and money change. Uh, his passport, believe it or not, was in perfect condition. <laughs> it had been it'd been underwater from the 1990s and we found it around it was around 2006 or so we found that 
the passport was perfect. The pants uh, had totally deteriorated except the pockets. I don't know why, but the pockets were still left. In the pockets were change, and all the all the like dimes and quarters, all the exterior had totally been gone. It had just dissolved except mm-hmm. for the copper in the inside, and it was all uh, inside of the coins. It was uh, all green, and the plane was almost totally gone after just 20 some years and we're talking about two engine beach crafts yeah uh these are not you know they're not cheap aircraft uh so anything in the water we saw trucks in the water that were almost totally disintegrated there are trains in the water yeah and literal trains and people go my god what is that well the bahamians if you get an old junk truck they'll take them out and they'll dump them in the ocean because it comes a fishing spot fish are attracted to it the best place to find uh Lobster down there is under a plane wing. <laughs> we watched a wow. guy get 14 lobster out of one under one plane wing when he lifted it up. One of the Bahamians we were with. <laughs> Maybe that's why the earth is mostly water. That's that's a that's God's reservoir to, to wipe out prior <laughs> civilizations. Well, yeah, another as it thing were. here. Okay, the pyramid. Yeah. Arthur C. Clarke, uh, in his uh, I was on the next to last episode of his uh, Arthur C. Clarke's Mysterious World. And this was like 1991 or so. Wow. And he did a show on the Great Pyramid, and they showed what the Great Pyramid is going to look like in 100,000 years. Unless they cover the Great Pyramid and do work with the Great Pyramid, it will be a huge pile of sand Yeah. in 100,000 years. It will not last. It will not last. Now, if you go to Egypt today, you'll see the Sphinx, and it looks really good. Well, if you see what the Sphinx really looked like, it was badly, badly eroded. It has been rebuilt. It's constantly being rebuilt, the Sphinx, constantly. Well, uh, I guess we just don't like the idea of, of, of being wiped away in history and nobody knowing who we are, but maybe that's just the scheme. That's the, that's uh, the scheme, man. That's the... Um, it's all going to go away, but when it goes away, it probably becomes something else, and maybe it's changed a new cycle. A um, and then I would like to think that we will branch out into the galaxy, and then just in the far, far future, just return Earth to its natural, you know, mm-hmm. clean it up, return it to its natural maybe. Uh, state, and um, come back and check on things. So. I think Elon Musk wants us all to go out there. I mean, we have a big playground, right? We have <laughs> yeah, a big garden, big, and that's... <laughs> Yeah, that, that's the, the other half. I've always grown up with the two minds of the um, are we alone thing. The one is the fantastical, and I really want to believe that. And if you look at, you mentioned uh, Carl Sagan. Sagan's, yeah. and then Drake's equation also is very similar. Like, yep. just the sheer size and number. Like, And then let's, you know, let's do a little equation and get that down to this is the probabilities, then... If so, then there's probably millions of civilizations out there. And the the other side of my mind is maybe we're looking at it as everything through our own our own projections. Um, even things like uh, UFOs and assuming that they're machines because we're really projecting because we have machines. We assume that something else we have machines. And your colleague, Mr. Collins, would say that we um, can't afford to think in this mechanistic term. You, you know, something. Beyond our, our, our understanding, we have to go um, leap out of our own projections, as hard as that is. So we, neither one of us think that they are machines. Yeah, just uh, maybe we are them, you know, the yeah. aliens, as it were. Um, so the, the other scenario is that we will branch out um, and we'll, over the course of thousands, millions of years, we'll grow up on different worlds. We'll be um, inherently human. Um, so it could be like Herbert's Dune, which I... Hmm. Really appreciate um, now. Um, I didn't think about this in the past, but there's no aliens or anything in that. Yeah. Um, everything is 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 from a human origin, and to me that rings kind of true. Um, so we, we we don't have to project that there's others like us out there, but we we could be. Well, you know, I don't know a single scientist who says we are the. This is the only place in the universe with life, and we know yeah. now with viruses. The viruses are nothing but packages of DNA. That's all they yeah. are. And they're everywhere. But they're everywhere. They're coming in from space. That's all that's yeah. actually been shown. So it's already. probably teeming with life, just not it's um, you know, not humanoid uh, It's probably all forms of life. Spaceships I mean, and the think of all the forms of life we had today, all of the the uh, biological uh, bacteria, the bacteria 
bacterial life, the plants, different types of animals, all the animals that have gone extinct. My yeah. God, how many plants have gone extinct since the beginning? Yeah. We've gone through hundreds of millions of years of life on earth. Yeah. And almost everything that ever existed is extinct. Yeah. We're the last ones here and we may go extinct. I think what's going to happen is we we're showed going, up late. We're going to evolve into something different. Yeah, and then what a, an incredible time to be alive to to see that. It could be terrifying, I don't know, um, with this technological era. Um, but we're still very much organic. We, know, we function yeah. the way we have in the, in the ancient past, but who knows? Uh, like Mr. Elon would reckon we're going with uh, like neural implants and things like that. Oh, I don't yeah. know. Um, I believe in there. the... We're I going there. That's literally where that's going. But we're going to evolve. We're going to change uh, pretty dramatically at some point. Yeah, and and there it seems to be throughout history, and I'm assuming in the future, this you know the, these two veins, you know, the, the advanced and the uh, the so-called indigenous or uh, native peoples that chose to to live in harmony with the old system, uh, yeah. the old system being Earth and nature. So um, in a way, those are the people who I think have it figured out. Well, we're I think just they did we're too. just going on a. But it was know. also inevitable, and I, I've said this before. A lot of people are angry that they. The native populations were destroyed pretty much by disease, and people get angry about it. And what I've often said, okay, if nobody ever came here, uh, if Columbus didn't exist, nobody came here, would the rest of the world be advanced like it is now, and North and South America would still have the Native Americans living yeah. the exact same way and South Americans living the exact same way? Would that be the way it is, or would something else have happened? I mean, they've lived that way for thousands of years. That it's almost like um, us advanced people are just, that's an option we, we chose. It's almost like some kind of experiment. And uh, I don't know, we, we might branch out into the stars and get highly technological, or there could be a calamity um, oh, yeah. like Atlantis, and then maybe that's the nature of things. and Maybe that's the way it's set up, just cataclysm after cataclysm, and then we, we kind of get that's what Knocked Plato back said. into the cycle. And, um, Plato said it's happened many times before, and that's why he told the story of Atlantis. He said the last time it happened was with Atlantis. Yeah. He said Earth has been through this cycle several times. Yeah. I guess we're in the privileged era of making that jump to space, but maybe, um, maybe even that's a part of a larger cycle. I don't know. <laughs> Thank you so you. much for your time and, and your ongoing work. And, yeah. um, many more explorations uh, to you, my friend. All right. Well, thank you so much. And thanks for having me in here. I'm good to see this. Uh, it's really good to see this facility. Uh, it's, I'm glad to see it being used. That's great. Well, thank you. Godspeed. <laughs>